grab a Bible and let's turn to James chapter 1. And uh, we're going to cover verses 19 to 21 today, address a subject relevant to us all, and that is human anger. And as a side note, Rachel laughed out loud when I started reading her the sermon last night because today's Mother's Day. And so I need to clarify, I did not choose this text on anger for Mother's Day. It just happened to be where we are in James. All right, close side note. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are good to us. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Gracious and merciful. You haven't dealt with us according to our iniquities, nor repaid us according to what our sins deserve. I pray for your spirit now that he would come and attend the preaching of the word. And we would hear the word with joy in the Holy Spirit. And you would make us through this word to be a people that is slow to speak, slow to anger. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we live in a world full of disappointment and trouble, full of injustice and imperfections and evil. And you get angry, and I get angry. In one sense, anger is natural because we're created in God's image. Uh, We have a built-in capacity to be angry at all that belittles the glory of God, all that questions the ways of our Creator. It's the righteous anger that should have been in Adam when the serpent tempted his wife. And it is the anger that we see in Jesus when He rebukes those who pervert the worship of God. Of God. But the anger that we're more familiar with is sinful anger. Everybody born into the world since Adam fell has a broken moral compass, and our passions are all disordered. We're bent in on ourselves, and that affects even our anger. Our anger no longer squares with producing the righteousness of God, as, as James will soon enough teach us. Instead, it leads to self-righteousness and backbiting and mild irritation and grumpiness and overly critical spirit, quietly shutting people out of our lives, complaining, harsh tones, quarrels, fits of rage, and so on. We live in a world of angry people. People are angry at each other. Angry with their circumstances, angry with the government. A few of of us at the church uh, even got cussed out the other day by a guy who was fuming mad because we we, uh, mowed down some blue bonnets across the field over here. No law against it, just loves Texas way too much. But we're no better 
Perhaps you were angry this past week over the direction of our nation. You were seething in anger over the way people are actually voting. Or maybe you spoke harshly to your children. Maybe nothing was voiced at all, but your thoughts at some point went, when something like this, this isn't fair. What is wrong with you? Are you kidding me? Again? What is the deal? We walk out of rooms in a huff. We grit our teeth. We get angry. God has words for us this morning, beloved. Words that take us into a new world. Into a new creation. I want you to remember verse 18 from last week. It says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. There's, there's hope for us. There's hope for this world of angry people. God regenerates the human heart. God creates in sinners new spiritual life in union with Jesus, and He does it by the word of truth. The gospel, basically God's word, births a new humanity. God's word births a new humanity, a new people, and this new people represent God's ongoing work to eventually renew the whole creation, which is huge when you consider what we just said about the world being so angry. People are normally angry because they're so bent in on themselves But God's word gives birth to a new humanity. The new birth necessarily leads then to a new life. A life where one is slow to speak and slow to anger. God's word creates an alternative society, in other words, that looks much different than the world. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. That's you and me. So if you ask the question, what kind of people does the Word of God create? Verse 18 taught us that the Word creates a new humanity. Verses 19 to 21 today are going to teach us how that new humanity lives. And so let's see how this new life goes, beginning in verse 19. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, and let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Three things that must characterize the new humanity. Number one, the new humanity must be quick to hear God's word. The new humanity must be quick to hear God's word. The command to hear in verse 19 is closely connected with the word of truth in verse 18. And also verses 22 and 23 further explain this command to hear, showing that hearing the word must result in obedience to the word. So the context suggests that what the community should be quick to hear is the word of truth. Is, the, is God's word. They should also be quick to hear one another. We'll get, to that, we'll get to that soon enough. But the primary voice they should listen to is God's, which we find in the scriptures of the, of the Old and New Testaments. The word that gave us new life 
is to be the, word, the same word that sustains our life. And there's a sense of, there's a sense of urgency in the heart of God's children to, to hear their father speak. You know, many of you get text messages throughout the day or notifications. And, and when that phone dings in your purse or buzzes in your pocket, you're quick to snatch it up. Sometimes midway through conversation, you got a word from somebody. Somebody commented on your Instagram. But I wonder if we're just as quick to turn to God's word, to snatch it up often throughout the day. Our problem isn't that we don't have access to it or the time for it. Our problem is that we often don't want it enough. But James encourages us to have a readiness about us for God to speak to us in the Scriptures. And hearing isn't merely recognizing that God spoke words. It's taking in those words with attentiveness and with thanksgiving and and with compliance to His will. We must be attentive to God's Word in private devotion, for example. Sunday morning can't be the only time you're hearing from God's Word. Yes, make the most of it, but open the Bible regularly in private devotion. Sometimes that'll be before the rest of the house wakes up. Sometimes it might be integrated with a lunch break or the kids' nap time. If you're like Susanna Wesley, throwing the apron over your head while the kids are going crazy... So you can pray and seek the Lord. Sometimes you and your wife might read it together before bed, but whenever you open the Word, come to God's Word expecting Him to speak. We must be attentive to God's Word also in person-to-person encounters. You have brothers and sisters in this church who are reading the Word of God with you. And if the Word of Christ is to dwell among us richly, if if we, as individuals, are to be teaching and admonishing one another regularly, how quick are we to listen when God's Word is shared? And are we just as quick to listen to the, the promises of God as we are to His rebukes? What sort of attention do we give the Word in our relationships with one another? Does it push us to greater faithfulness to Christ? Or are we just walking away as more informed Christians? We must be attentive to God's Word also in public preaching. Make the most of Sunday mornings. Pray for whoever might be preaching. Read the sermon passage the night before. We usually print it in the e-news. And then come with a readiness to hear God speak through His Word. These are just a few examples, but whatever the circumstances, be quick to hear God's Word. James is describing what our general disposition should be in all that we do as Christians. Often we make haste to listen to news media, talk radio, and the latest Facebook trends. And yet none of these words are 100% trustworthy nor do they guarantee eternal life. God's Word is and does both. The Bible gives us the authoritative word on the world and who God is and the purpose of our life in His world. And it reveals Jesus who is able to save us. One of the things James has been doing 
to this point has been encouraging us into wisdom, the wisdom of God. It's, it's the Word of God that gives that wisdom. And when we're quick to hear God's Word, that Word leads to a couple of more characteristics. When God's Word is going into our ears, it does something else, it starts controlling our speech. So secondly, the new humanity must be slow to speak. The new humanity must be slow to speak. That doesn't mean we don't speak at all. What James has in mind is that the tongue is often a loose cannon. Uh, just if you, if you just, just go home and read through the book of James, and what you, you're going to find things, you're going to find people cursing each other, uh, boasting in the wrong things, quarreling, speaking evil of one another, grumbling, swearing false oaths. As he says in chapter 3, verse 6, the, the, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. That's why we need to slow this little mechanism down. And James is really just building on the wisdom of the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs 10.19, for example. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 17.27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge... And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Not cool as in hip, cool as in calm. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. The idea is that it's the fool who thinks he has to run his mouth all the time. It's the guy on Facebook who puts himself in the judge's seat and thinks that he must give his opinion on every issue without understanding or desire to listen. It's the fool who, instead of listening to the other person, is building up what he's going to say next and next and next without being subject to the Word of God in content, rhetoric, or tone. Quickness to speak shows a lack of regard for God's Word. Quickness to speak shows a refusal to bring all speech first under the rule of Christ as articulated in the Scriptures. You see, the tongue is a revealer of what we're really like inside. James will get to that later on. The tongue reveals whether we really want Christ to rule us in every aspect of our lives. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus uh, raises the stakes even higher. He says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Good night. Every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. James and Jesus aren't trying to put a damper on casual talk, but they are trying to show us how much the word of truth must be treasured in our saying anything. God's word must so arrest our hearts that what comes out pleases God. One of the things that gets repeated in our household is this test when we're speaking to one another. Is what you're saying true, kind, and helpful? Is what you're saying true, kind, and helpful? That helps 
That we, we help each other, asking that question, we help each other slow our speech down. First off, is it true? Not only must we speak the truth to one another, Ephesians 4.25 says, but we must work to understand every situation truthfully. How quick we are to give our opinion about something before we've ever done the patient work of getting the facts straight. Our perception of things isn't always reality. Our perception of things isn't always reality, and we must be humble enough to admit that and work first from what is true. Sometimes our kids are quick to accuse each other of lying when they just really haven't understood each other. We have to help, uh, work, help them work toward the truth. I've also heard Christian men debating various points of theology without first understanding the terms they're even using. Just talking past each other. I've been in counseling sessions where poisonous words are hurled across the table before there's ever a desire to understand the other person. Is it also kind? For 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. Will the words you speak to this or that person show kindness? Have you made the effort to charitably listen to the other person's position and perspective? Or will your words just stir up strife unnecessarily? Is it also helpful... This is Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. For building up as fits the occasion. In other words, we take great pains to find words that match the occasion. We have not fulfilled our duty to Christ if we merely drop cliches on our brother or sister in their weakness or in their time of hurt or in their time of gladness. We must speak in ways appropriate to the situation. What is happening? Are they grieving? Do they have tangible needs I can meet? Before I say anything. We must speak in ways appropriate also to the individual. Who are they? How mature is their Christian faith? Do they trust me? So is what you're saying true, kind, and helpful? That's just three questions we ask as a family, and the Bible presses us to ask others just like it. Sometimes assessing these questions will mean that we shut up, and that we pray, and we wait to speak. But the point is that God's word must inform what we speak and how we speak before we speak. His word will make us slow to speak. His word will also make us slow to anger. Slow to anger. It's the third characteristic of the new humanity birthed by God's word. 
Again, that doesn't mean there's not a place for righteous anger. We should be angry with the things that God is angry with. The first of which is our own sin. But how careful we must be that our so-called righteous anger never becomes just a cover-up for what's really our personal irritation. Never becomes a facade for what's really self-righteousness. A disguise for what's really a self-centered attempt to get what we want. And James is helpful here. James is dealing with our sinful anger. The anger of man, he calls it, in verse 20, that can't produce God's righteousness. And, And again, James is is building on the wisdom of the Old Testament. Proverbs 14.29, for example, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7.9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. David Pallison has an article called Understanding Anger. It's actually three, three, three or four journal articles that he writes. But, but he depicts anger in terms of a, of a self-contained judicial system. And he, descri- and he, d- he defines anger like this. Anger is an emotionally aroused form of judgment against perceived evil. That's a really good definition. Anger is an emotionally aroused form of judgment against perceived evil. In other words, anger is not just an emotion. It's not just something tied to our personality. It's not merely something inside of us. It's a moral act. It is something we do. It's a judgment that we make with all of our faculties involved against something that we've perceived is evil. Our perceptions might be wrong, but we perceive it as evil and we're responding in judgment. When James commands us to be slow to anger, he quickly explains why from a basic gospel truth. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, or man's anger does not produce God's justice, is another way you can translate it. When we refuse to turn from our sinful anger, what we're basically saying is that we can dish out God's justice better than He can. We foolishly attempt to put ourselves in the judge's seat. In contrast, James is telling us that we must put off the old self who constantly attempts to be God and to put on the new self who is content with God being God. The new self is at peace with God exercising His judgment with wisdom and in His timing. The new self rests in God's righteous judgment most pointedly seen in the cross of Christ 
and in the final judgment. The new self rests assured when God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12. God will make right all the wrongs that this world knows. He will punish all sin and prove His righteousness to all. He does this either by punishing the sinner in hell, in the final judgment, or by punishing Jesus in the sinner's place. If you trust in Jesus, that's where your sins are punished. It's where God proves Himself righteous by forgiving you on the one hand, but still punishing your sin on Christ. And that's what the cross is about. The cross is where heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love, as the hymn writer would say. God displayed in the cross of Christ that He was righteous and that He will not overlook sin. The question for us is whether we trust Him. Whether we trust Him to bring His righteous purposes to pass or whether we will choose to take matters into our own hands. We must be slow to anger because the God who saved us is slow to anger. Yes, He doesn't overlook iniquity. Yes, He punishes the evildoer. But he also proclaimed to Moses long ago, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the writers of Scripture continue to announce that truth about our God until we see how patient he really is when he gives up his only son for us on the cross. And it's this Father who births the new humanity with His Word. In other words, James tells us to be slow to anger because the righteousness of our Father was demonstrated in this way and that He is slow to anger. Like Father, like Son. Jesus would say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's the sons of God who are peacemakers. Why? Because God is a peacemaker. And our Savior is the same way as well. He loved us while we were still enemies. He had every right to punish us. But He loved us while we were still enemies. He is slow to anger. He returned good for evil. When He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. Why? 1 Peter 2 says, because he trusted him who judges justly. We see this text playing out in the life of our Savior on the way to the cross. Trusting him who judges justly, he didn't revile in return. And we must follow in his footsteps. When people riot in the streets, when people slander each other in the public square, when people feed off of the angry populace to win a vote... 
Each of these situations become an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to stand out as the only true alternative society that has any hope. The church cannot follow the world into its sinful anger. We have been brought forth as the first fruits of God's creatures, which is His new world. So how might we grow into being this kind of people who are slow to anger? I'm going to take David Pallison's lead again and give you a, a, just a few questions to ask yourself. Uh, the, the Bible gives us several questions to ask in cultivating a heart that's slow to anger. I'll give you a few of one, a, f- a few of them. Then we'll move to verse 21. So first off, a good question to ask is, am I angry about the right things? Am I angry about the right things? As we see from verse 20, God's righteousness must be at the forefront of our minds. So we have to ask ourselves whether we perceived evil accurately to begin with. And the only way we'll know that is by reading the Bible. And hearing the Bible, the Bible tells us what things line up with God's character and what things do not. The Bible tells us what things are truly commanded of us and what things are just a matter of personal preference and personal expectation. Another question, what do I really want in this moment? What do I really want in this moment? In other words, what's motivating your anger? Is it a love for the glory of God to be made known among all peoples? Is it a passion to grow in personal holiness, perhaps through the trial that has got you on the edge of sinful anger? Is it, is it a desire to grow in pers- personal holiness? Is it, is it a compassion and a love for the people involved. I mean, God's anger works like that for us. His anger at our sin drove Him to patiently and compassionately sanctify it out of us, first by offering His Son on the cross, then by sanctifying us through the Spirit, and on the last day, He will make us new once and for all. In other words, His anger for sin is what drives Him to get it out of the people He loves. Or to protect them finally in the last day from what sin does to them. So is it, is it compassion and, and, and love? Does it show compassion and does it lead to compassion and love for the persons in, involved? Or is your anger rooted more in being inconvenienced, uh, more in winning an argument, more in getting your own way? Anger that is truly righteous will bring God glory and compel love for neighbor. Another question to ask, is my anger expressed in the right way? 
How controlled is it? Oftentimes, this is where we fail. Even when we get angry about the right things, we express anger in the wrong ways. Raised voice, harsh attitudes, cunning remarks, exacting discipline, fits of rage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. In our anger, we must always submit to God and His Spirit and His purposes and reflect His character. And another one, how long does my anger last? How long does my anger last? This one is from Ephesians 4.26. Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, Paul knows how susceptible we are to sin in our anger. And so he puts a time limit on it. Better not go to sleep tonight. Angry. The wrong reasons. Stewing over it. If you do, he says, Satan will use it against you and the relationships that you're in. This is why Rachel and I tell couples in our premarital counseling to reconcile swiftly. Don't stay angry with each other. It's also why Rachel and I, throughout our marriage, have shared several nights. Three o'clock in the morning, striving and working toward peace and forgiveness. And also because I'm just stubborn, but... If your anger is lasting a long time... Paul tells us we're in dangerous territory. Finally, what is the effect of my anger? What does it produce? James tells us here, if it's going to be righteous, it needs to produce God's righteousness. It needs to bring that about. So will it end in producing God's justice? Will it bring about His righteous purposes for the family, for the community of faith, for the world? These kinds of questions will help you become slow to anger. Not because something inherent in the questions, but because questions like this help lead us to repentance. They help get to the heart of what is really moving this anger. And they stir greater dependence on Christ for His mercy. And really, that's what, what, I've, what I've been trying to demonstrate with these various questions, whether in terms of slow to speak or being slow to anger, is how James goes on to instruct us in verse 21. You see, you see, there's an inference he draws. If it's the case that man's anger doesn't produce God's justice, if it's the case that the world, I mean, that the word informs what we do with our ears and our mouths and our passions, then there's two very practical steps that should shape our Christian walk. First, we remove evil with vigilance. We remove evil with vigilance. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The filthiness that he's talking about is our moral filth. He uses the same word in chapter 2 to speak uh, of the poor man in shabby 
clothing and shabby clothing. Here is serving as a word picture for our sin, much like uh, Joshua the high priest was clothed with, with moral uh, guilt in Zechariah chapter 3 and moral filth. So it's a picture of the old self that we have to constantly put off. The only way we can put off the old self is if it's crucified with Christ. That's how it loses its power. But salvation is also a process. And once it's crucified, we must also keep putting it off. In fact, the idea of rampant wickedness is sometimes translated rank growth. Some of you are gardeners in here. And you know the ongoing work, season after season, that it takes to keep your garden free of pesky weeds. Just when you think you've dug them up over here, new ones are springing up somewhere else. And James is saying that our remaining sin is like that. We must be vigilant to remove evil until Christ returns and we are made like Him. But positively speaking, we must also receive the Word with humility. We must also receive the Word with humility. He says, receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. So you're working hard to keep the weeds of sin out of the garden, but you're also fertilizing the soils with meekness, with humility. In other places, like with the fruit of the Spirit, this word behind meekness is translated as gentleness. In a few places you see it paired with humility. Uh, One dictionary describes meekness like this, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Isn't that interesting? It's the opposite of the guy who is quick to speak and quick to anger. Sinful anger will close you off to the Word of God because it does not have this meekness about it. By contrast, meekness provides the best context for the Word to produce in us salvation. The Bible speaks of our salvation as past, present, and future reality. In this case, the emphasis is primarily future. If we want to obtain final salvation, we must keep receiving the Word with meekness. With meekness, you're giving the implanted word the best environment to flourish and bear fruit for your eternal life. And why do you think he calls it the implanted word? The implanted word. It's because God's grace stands behind this charge of James. This is the language of the new covenant from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts. And this also comes with it, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus inaugurated that new covenant when he died on the cross for our sins. We celebrated last week with the Lord's Supper. This is really important. You see, James is not calling us to an external conformity to something outside of us. He's calling us to an internal conformity to what God has already planted here by the Holy Spirit. The implanted word in verse 21 is the word of truth in verse 18. And that word of truth not only brings new life, but we continue to conform ourselves to it. It's something here inside implanted by God already. And we don't conform ourselves to it on our own. I mean, the Holy Spirit is in here doing His thing to make us willing hearers of the Word, to make us slow to speak, to make us slow to anger. It's like James is saying, hey, the seed of God's Word has already sprouted in you guys. It's made you into a new person, a new people. Now give it room to grow by getting the sin out and nourish it with humility and meekness. God is already at work in you, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So work, till the soil, receive the Word. And therein lies our only hope for change. The world, apart from Christ, has to be angry. Because they're enslaved to their sinful passions. Not so with the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be an angry people anymore because we are not enslaved to our sinful passions. For those of us in Christ, God has changed our hearts. He has set us free from the power of sin. He has planted His Word inside and given us the Holy Spirit. And you and I, we may have a way to go because salvation is a process, but hey, the initial seed has been planted. And the end is the salvation of our souls. It says, the Word is able to save your soul. The Word is able to save your soul from your past sins. It's able to save your soul from all your present struggles against sin. And it's able to save your soul from all future sins. How? Because it reveals the person and work of Jesus to us and unites us to His death and resurrection life. So know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Know this. Let's clear the garden of sin. Let's fertilize the roots of this gospel seed that's already been planted here with humility. And let's pray that God's Word shapes our church into a people who are quick to hear His Word, who are slow to speak, and who are slow to anger. Let's pray together.